0: Australia. There's
1: fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms blooms, so, as you far know, as But I ain't spending any time on it. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Give me my Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics.
2: It's called being. You wouldn't believe it—a goddamn bloody adult.
1: Well, we're on the home stretch of the federal election now, with two more weeks to go until the Australian people head to the ballot to decide their future. If you've been following the Batuta Advocates coverage of this election with the Decode podcast, thank you for tuning in again. If you're new to the Decode podcast, you've chosen a hell of a first episode. So far throughout this series, we've spoken to a lot of politicians and political players about a range of different topics. We've done candidate profiles, we've discussed the dark arts of polling and preferences, as well as the role the unions play, the history of both the Liberal and Labor Party. And following the trend of this current election campaign, we've also spoken to a lot of independents. Now with two weeks to go, we've decided to steer this ship back to the major parties because at the end of the day, regardless of how many crossbenchers make it into parliament, the next government will be led by either a Liberal MP or a Labor MP. My name's Clancy Overall, editor of the Batuta Advocate. And I'm joined, as always, by Errol Parker. How are you going, Errol? It's a good morning here in the Diamantina
0: Clear. It's uh, starting to get a bit chilly, but i tell you what, it's going to get much colder in Canberra in these last two and a half
1: weeks. Absolutely. And there's a lot of election fatigue going around, so uh, we thought we'd tighten it up and start talking about, you know, what both major parties are running with. ...on this final, final dash to the finish line. Today we're talking to a shadow cabinet minister for Anthony Albanese's Labour Party. It didn't take us long to lock this one in because the ALP are trying to get their message out there whichever way they can. For any Liberal staffers that might be listening, we'd love to hear from you about lining up a Liberal front bencher for next week... ...because uh, we've spoken to Dave Sharma, we've spoken to Jason Falinski's people, we've spoken to Tim Wilson... Uh, even Josh Frydenberg's people won't get back to us. They don't want to bother us. So if you're listening, get back to us. We want you for this last episode. Today, for the second last episode, our guest is the Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy, a high-profile attack dog for the Labor Party, and the member for McMahon, deep out in the area, Western Sydney. Thank you for joining us, Chris Bowen.
2: Pleasure, Clancy. G'day, Errol. Good to be out of the big smoke and in the Diamantina in uh, Petuta.
0: It's always good to be back. Well, I'm sure David littlepowered rolled out the red carpet for you this morning at the airport. He sent me a text message welcoming me to his uh, his patch, yeah. No, he's good like that, to be fair.
1: Now, we want to talk to you about your story. We've seen you in a range of different cabinet kind of portfolios and shadow portfolio roles. As I said before, you're kind of a high-profile face within the Labor Party. And um, as everyone seems to you know, be tightening up, the Labor Party is looking... It's looking like a different thing this this time around. It's looking like a well-oiled machine. What drew you to this machine? What's what we want to first kind of start with? I mean, aside from being a Western Sydney lad in an area that's always voted Labor, what drew you into the Labor Party? Yeah, so I grew up in Western Sydney
2: on the, you know, as they say, the wrong side of the tracks. My dad was a shift worker. He used to go off to work at 11 o'clock at night and come home at 7 in the morning. My mum was a childcare worker who looked after kids in her own home. So she used to have to try and look after kids while dad was asleep in the front room. So, you know, it was all going on. We lived in a, you know, fibro house in Smithfield. You know, I was attracted to politics because I looked around me and thought there's stuff that's just not right. You know, obviously I was very unformed. It wasn't a very sophisticated view, but I looked around and I saw people working their guts out not really getting ahead. I saw people I went to school with who were clearly very bright and going to uni was never even a prospect. It wasn't anything we would talk about. And I just had a feeling that there was a better way. And then I worked out pretty early, to my way of thinking, that politics was a way to get your hands on the big levers to try and change things and make things fairer. And then I worked out pretty early that the Labor Party was the only party that cared about people like us, in my view, you know, and tried to make things a bit fairer and give people a fair shot at getting ahead. And so I took myself off as a 15-year-old to the local Labor Party branch meeting in my school uniform, and I got a few looks as I walked in because I thought, you know, who stacked him in? But I was actually just <laughs> turning up to uh, turning up to see what it was all about and uh, basically fell in love with the party from my first meeting. And, you know, the things that the Labor Party was talking about, this was at the time when Hawke was Prime Minister and Keating was Treasurer, and, you know, Keating was the member for the seat next
0: door to ours, so he was a Western Sydney yeah. boy. So it was all, all very exciting. So that's what drew me in, yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, a person like Paul Keating would have basically, you know, forged a bit of a path, mm. really. I mean, like, he didn't have a top-flight education. He didn't go to some fancy Sandstone university, and he ended up being the treasurer.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, he he sort of deployed the English language in the course of reform. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he wanted to change things. And that's what I was about, you know, in a very unformed, kiddie sort of a way. But I was interested in change. How are we going to... I didn't like... The society I didn't like community the way it was working. I knew that there was something wrong. I knew that our school was underfunded. I knew that just because it was a Western Sydney public school, we were missing out. I knew that, again, as I said, there were heaps of kids I, I went to school with. I just knew they were smarter than me and they should be going to uni, but they weren't even thinking about it. I was thinking about uni, but it just wasn't something that you did, by and large, you know. And, um, you know, the hospital was, when I was growing up, our Fairfield Hospital was built in World War Two. It was effectively fibro, full of asbestos. It was just, you know, nobody a shit about us basically so i knew that again i thought in my own sort of immature way well i could go and work for like not-for-profits and charities but that's dealing with the symptoms mm-hmm. politics is how you deal with the causes and you do what paul keating says get your hands on the levers the levers change things mm-hmm. and that's what drew me to labor politics
1: we've interviewed a lot of uh footballers on the batuta advocate podcast a lot of rugby league players who say similar things to what you're saying for every for every bloke that makes it out of western sydney into the nrl Or out of a country town in the NRL, there was a kid back home that just didn't follow that trajectory for whatever reason. Mm. Quite often, social issues. Quite often, you know, their own drive. What was it that got you through university? Did you come from a household that kind of uh, had that? uh, You know, were looking at that for you, or was was it your involvement in politics? Were you one of those labour kids that got a tap on the shoulder and said, "Mate, go get get an education. We'll we'll use you later."
2: I don't know clancy i just don't know it was just in me no my parents obviously were wonderful parents they loved me very much and you know gave me every support they could but they'd never been to uni it was never a thing for them they worked hard to you know ensure that i had that option to support me but no it didn't come from them they would have been equally you know supportive if i have left school at year 10 and gone off to tafe that wasn't wasn't a big thing for them so i don't know where it came from again i think it was just this feeling that you know, things have got to change and I worked out that for me, you know, a uni education was something I needed to get ahead and to, you know, make the mark I wanted to make on society. And yeah, no, nobody really pulled me aside in the labour party and said, go get an education, but they did encourage me. You know, I look back and there were sort of three or four people, I can name some of whom aren't with us anymore, who said, you know, you've got something going on, kid, you know, yeah. stick with it and uh, work hard and you'll be okay and follow your dreams. So... Yeah, to a degree, I think. Yeah, but it wasn't specific. It wasn't you go to uni and, you know, in 20 years' time we'll put you in parliament. It was nothing like that. The Life doesn't work like that soon in the Labor Party. Uh, but it was, you know,
1: kid, you got something there, just work on it and, and we'll see what happens. This is in both major parties and it's in the Greens as well. A lot of youth politics kind of plays a big part in creating distrust in the major parties because you end up seeing these chosen ones. You know, the Labor Party in central Queensland who, you know, I'm sure you guys haven't written off just yet. They've been re- voting for the Nats for quite a while now. But, you know, a big part of them swinging would have been the fact that they saw all of these little, you know, born-to-rule kids from both major parties. The National Party kind of doesn't emulate that, and they work hard to make sure they don't look like those. Well, yeah, they work hard the perception on yeah, it, yeah. you know. The, yeah. Yeah. How did you avoid that yourself? You, you don't strike us as that. You don't strike us as someone who came through all that, you know, pointless kind of youth politics complaining about university yeah. membership fees and that kind of <laughs> stuff, or car parks and shit at uni where people are just kind of getting worked up and they like this cosplay of being a politician at 19 <laughs> years old, which is actually well, not, not not a very nice thing to kind of look at as a coal miner. Well, you're on to me because... Um,
2: <laughs> what- well, I never did student politics. Yeah. I never really did young labour. I was a member and I helped out my mates, but it was never really my thing. You know, I was never on the executive or anything like that. And to the degree that I ever did student politics, I, you know, I did join the, the labour club. But I was at uni when Hex was coming in, you know, when Hawk and Keating were introducing yeah. Hex. So it was and- you and Hockey...
0: Up there, well, the uh, except <laughs> I turned up at the Labour
2: Club meeting and said, "I think this is a great idea. I think we should pay. I think we should finance those who come after us." And um, I was in a minority of, you know, two or something. <laughs> yeah, but I was like, "No, we should be paying." And when we're earning money, we should be putting something back. To be fair, there were, it wasn't a minority too. There was a few of us who had that view. But it was by far. You wouldn't go out on the on the main quadrangle with a poster saying, "You know, what do we want, Hex, And where do we want it now? <laughs> yeah, no. yeah. You know, <laughs> end up pretty, pretty lonely. So. I focused more on the local stuff, the local community. That's what more drove me. I was elected to my local council at a very young age. It's just what I I was into. I was into sort of more the, again, what drove me into politics was our area missing out. So it struck me that, you know, student politics wasn't going to do anything about that. It was, it was more the local campaigns and the local infrastructure that got me going. And, and to the degree that I was in, student politics was, you know, not very much at all. It was saying I was really sort of putting a different point of view to say, you know, Joe Hockey was out there, as you said, sort of campaigning against a lot of those reforms. I was saying, I think they're pretty good because, you know, yeah. we do want more people. We're not going to draw up the ladder behind us. We've got to help people get into uni and that means money, you know, when it comes down to it, it means money. And... You know, we're all going to earn more because we've had this privilege of coming to
0: university, so we should be bloody paying something. Well, to his defence, so 25 years later, he did say that the age of entitlement was over Mm. and and that everyone (laughs) needed to uh, pull up their socks and get in the trenches. But I just want to quickly touch on how you reconcile, as you say, you know, how things weren't as easy as they could be out there in in Western Sydney. How would you reconcile candidates like Andrew Charlton, you Mm. know, coming into Parramatta and Christiana Keneally coming in next door into Fairfield, like... No,
2: it's a fair question. Well, look, Andrew grew up in Western Sydney. He's done well. He's you know worked his guts out. He's he's moved away, and now he's moving back to give something back. And Christina, likewise. I mean, she's not from uh, Western Sydney, obviously. She's from America, but she's you know not from a privileged background. She's worked hard, and she gets the community. She knows our community as well as Premier. I understand the sort of criticism, but also I also understand that you know what Western Sydney ultimately needs is. Cabinet ministers fighting for the area and sitting around a cabinet table. Now the member for Fowler, for example, which is the seat Christina is running for, has never had a cabinet minister. They've never had somebody at the cabinet table. Christina would be at the cabinet table or in a Labor government, and I know she'll be saying, "Well, I live in this community," which she has. She's moved there. You know, credit. You're right yeah. to raise her background, but, yeah, she's living there now. She will be a senior cabinet member. Same, you know, Andrew won't be immediately a cabinet member, but I think we'd all agree he's got huge potential. So, you
0: know, that's well, really... Came up with JobKeeper. Well, yeah. <laughs> and she did uh, tweet the other day that she was in COVID isolation yeah. at home yeah. in Liverpool. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just,
0: well, you know, you know fair, I'm not... fair enough that she points that out. though, Because yeah. there, there have been stories
2: saying she's promised to move there if she wins. No, she's moved there now. Yeah. So, you yeah.
1: know... That's um, another thing I want to ask you about. You know, there's that yarn going around that she's promised to move there. Last election, there was a death tax that was being peddled by Clyde Palmer and actually mm. your Liberal opposition, the Morrison government. Mm. You can't play dirty because obviously you've got to be very careful, you know. The opposition has to be perfect mm. and the current government can do whatever they like. And we see it, you know, Albanese makes a gaffe on the first day of the campaign and it's the front page for a week. You know, if Morrison had done the same thing, it wouldn't have... We won't put you in a position where you have to say that there's a bias, but we would say that there is, particularly with the Murdoch rags. (laughs) Now, what I want to ask is, how do you not lose your temper? You know, because there's a lot of pettiness that you have to deal with. I mean, there's people up there targeting you, putting you you on billboards. How do
2: you know I don't, Clancy? How do you know
1: I don't walk around swearing
2: for five minutes before I hold the press conference? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) that's
1: that's, that's the question. How do you not just blow your lid? Because Morrison does. He did the other day without the rates rise. It's not about politics. Like, how do you not blow a fuse and call someone a fucking prick on Sky News when you do roll that gauntlet?
2: Look, I've been doing this a while now and I sort of channel my frustration as opposed to my anger, really. Mm. I was very frustrated the last lecture about this death tax bullshit, mm. you know, because it was just a complete fantasy, which mm. they just invented. And I thought... Oh, well, I better go out and deal with it. And so I held a press conference saying there will be no death tax. And so what do they do? They cut an ad of me saying death tax 10 times, mm-hmm. you know, and then Rand ran said, why well, is Labor talking about a death tax? Yeah, well, because you bastards are talking about a death yeah, tax yeah. and it's a lie. Yeah. So, yeah, I do find that frustrating, but there's no point, you know, getting angry about it. You know, mm-hmm. you just deal with it and you come up with the best response and you come up with the best counter, and that's usually you fight fear with facts. Yep. We're dealing with it now with climate. Yep. Right, they're yeah. out there saying all sorts of things about our climate policy. Our climate policies, you know, if I say so myself, well designed, it's sensible, it's well calibrated, it's pro economic growth. But they'll just go out and say what they say about it, yep. And they'll say, they'll also, as I sometimes say to colleagues, well, they're just going to invent our policies anyway, so we should have good ones. Like, yep. if we don't have a good policy, they'll just go out and say what our policy is, yep. they'll just invent it, whether it's a death tax or a carbon tax, whatever it is, they just invent it. So know we're better off having good, solid policies like what we've got in climate, which we can then counter with the facts. And I just channel my frustration into doing that. And yeah, I mean, of course, I get up and I read the papers in the morning very early. Mm-hmm. And of course, I have, oh, here we go again. You know, this is just ridiculous. But then you think, well, okay, it is what it is. We counter it. We deal with it. And I think too, also, you just got to remember that people also aren't stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean, they yeah. don't factor it in. They when you've got an anti-Labour front page every day on the Telegraph, people don't necessarily think, oh, well, that's what I think then because yeah. they read the Telegraph. They know that's the Telegraph view, right? So yeah. they factor that in yeah. you know, you can't tell yourself that it's, that people are going, oh, I was going to vote Labor but yeah. now I read this in the Telegraph so no, I won't. I mean, that's <laughs> well, yeah, my I and mean, large not yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah, if that,
1: if yeah. it did happen then Dan Andrews would, yeah. Would, would, yeah. would have been assassinated by now and, um, And Anastasia Palaszczuk would have lost by a landslide, Mm. and as would have McGowan, I guess. And Alan Jones would still have a job, I guess. But look, I
0: just want to touch on a few things. I was talking to a few locals up here this morning about it. They were talking about what efforts Australia can do to limit their carbon emissions. Because in the scheme of things, they say, you know, we're a population of 25 million our democracy is just an appendix on the toxic kind of mega column that is, you know, the Western world. Is that what they said this morning on the streets? That- <laughs> yeah. Down <laughs>
1: <You're laughs> to the pub. And they that said, the but, like,
0: but like, what impact would, you know, 25 million people reducing their carbon emissions have in the scheme of things when you've got, you know, billions of people all over yeah. the world who are still trying to live like Americans? Yeah. Look, I hear that argument a lot. I hear it, frankly, not
2: that the people on the streets of Batuta would be coming from this point of view, but... I hear that from people who are effectively climate change deniers or delayers, right? Ah, oh, that doesn't matter. Let me make a couple of key points. One, we're the 14th biggest emitter in the world. Right? We're the first or second in per capita terms, but yeah. the 14th biggest in absolute terms, i.e. So that argument says really, well, sure, somebody should do something about it. The 13 countries that emit more than us should do something about it, but us and the 170 countries that emit the same as us or less than us, we shouldn't have to worry. That's just complete nonsense, right? Complete bullshit. We're all in this, right? And yes, so so we can't say just because we're the fourteenth biggest emitter in the world that somehow what we do doesn't count. Secondly, we're, we are about one percent of emissions, sure, but you know we were one percent of troops in World War Two as well. We don't say well none of that counted. You know, yeah. that would be a ridiculous argument. It all counted. What we did, Canada did, everybody did count. It. Yeah. So even um, the Kiwis, especially our ANZAC cousins. So. Yeah. Um, you know that all counts, and so and it's just a cop out to say, well, the rest of the world should do something because every country would say that. America would say, well, we're not going to do anything until China does, and China yeah. would say, well, hang on, we're late to this economic growth party, so America should go first. I mean, it's, just, it's just not going to wash. And um, you know, we are the largest, or the second largest emitter per capita, so we've got a certain moral obligation, I think, and we've got a real obligation. And final point: not only do we have an obligation, it's good for our economy. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. we should make the transition because we have a we're, we can be a renewable energy powerhouse. We've been searching for, you know, 234 years for a comparative advantage We have more sunlight hits our landmass than any other country in the world. We're above average wind. Our offshore wind is closer to shore, so it's cheaper than it's the
0: average landmass. So we've got massive advantages. Why wouldn't we be doing this? Why and we wouldn't we be taking these opportunities? The world's third highest reserves of uranium as well.
2: Uh, yeah, sure, but you know, I, I, I'm really focused on making this a renewable energy powerhouse yeah. because there are massive opportunities there. You know, and there's countries in our region next door, close by, that can't really do this on their own. Like take Singapore for example. Yeah, that, one thing that renewable energy does need is space, and they don't have it. they're a, yeah. they're a city state. They'll have to buy renewable energy off us, really, if we can produce it and get it to them. Now we can do that, like take Sun Cable for example, which is a massive yeah. solar farm in the Northern Territory, 24 million solar panels. It's going to sell solar energy to Singapore via a submarine cable. I mean, these—that's just the tip of the iceberg and what we can do as a country. Yeah. So. Yeah, we do, Errol, have an, uh, an obligation, in my view, just because we're 1% of emissions doesn't let us off the hook. But even if we didn't have a moral obligation, this is good for us. Mm-hmm. And this is what I've been trying to achieve in the climate change portfolio, is to break down this 20 years of liberal lies that, oh, action on climate change, yeah, 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 but it'll cost you your job. No, it's going to create jobs. Yeah. And Yes, there's change coming. Yes, there's economic change coming, absolutely. You can pretend it's not happening like Matt Canavan and, you know, put your head in the sand and say the world's always going to need our coal and, you know, nothing's going to change. Or you can say, no, the world is changing. 80% of our trading partners are decarbonising, but we can create this new energy. We've got a massive opportunity, and you know it's a myth that there's no jobs in renewable energy. There's plenty of jobs in renewable energy. There's plenty of jobs in the regions. the areas that have powered Australia for so long, like the Hunter Valley, Central Queensland, Illawarra, Colibunbury, all of them will power us into the future, but the world is going to change, and we can have policies to actually... Give a framework to get that investment going in renewable energy and create the jobs of the future.
0: I'd say that there has been a bit of an issue though with the Labor Party in the last couple of elections, where the word transition hmm. out of you know the reliance on fossil fuels means that the young kind of men and women on you know the outer metro areas who go to work in high-vis and drive a Ford Ranger, they see that as being you know the end of their halcyon days <laughs> of of earning you know a high income. Can people be transitioned away from these high-paying jobs in... Yeah, yeah. This kind of sector into a high paying job in the renewable energy yeah, sector. Yeah. And you're right. You know, whenever the Labour Party traditionally has said transition, again the Christensen's and
2: Canavans and Joyces have come out and said, uh huh. They yeah. are going to transition you out of a job. You yeah. know, that, that's basically their
0: words. You'll be living in the mangroves and Yeah.
2: In t- so I talk about the transformation of the economy and all the jobs that are going to be created. You know, it's it's more than a transition. Transition is like something you have to do because you know you're sort of forced to transform we can transform the economy. Renewable energy jobs can be created with the right policies, and they can be well-paying, and more, and more. I mean, we can manufacture more in Australia. You know, we've put 60 million solar panels on roofs in Australia in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. How many have been made in Australia? 1%. Couldn't tell you. 1%. Yeah, 1%. 1%. You know, 99% made in, you know, mainly China. Yeah. Right, but the solar panel is... is mainly an Australian invention, the modern solar panel, University of New South Wales. So we've exported the technology and we've exported the jobs. So with the right policy settings, we're going to put a lot more than 60 million solar panels in the next 10 years as we move really to a, a much more renewable economy, we should be making them here. We should be making batteries here. We're the world's largest source of lithium. We should be adding the value. Again, these are all opportunities we'll miss out on if we just keep pretending it's not happening and you know, arguing about whether we're really committed to net zero or not, which is what the government of the day is doing. They're wasting time. Get on with it. And we want to get on with it.
1: Well, this is, this is a kind of almost a greater question about um, decentralisation. But, you know, as Errol just pointed out there, the word transition is terrifying to both carbon-exposed workers and, of course, the coalition government. Say, you know, Labor Party wins this election. You're running the ball on this portfolio. You pull into a town like Mackay, forty to 60,000 people. I'm going to say up to 10,000 people, their livelihood relies mm. on the fossil fuel sector. What can you do for those people? You know, if you had the power and yeah. had, everyone was working with you and you had a majority government, what are you going to say to those people? Because they do... Have a lifestyle, they have a life that, yeah. they, that they don't want to lose. Would you say they're FIFOs anyway? Would you send them to the lithium mines instead? What's the plan there and um, what is the plan for the regions? So, Clancy, I do that already as a shadow minister. You know,
2: I go into into regional towns. It's part of my job to talk to people in the cities, but it's a big part of my job to talk to people in the regions. And I'd keep doing it as, as minister if we win. You know, I go to coal fired power stations and I go to gas fired power stations and, you know, we have the high vis meetings and as I say to them, I've got to win the argument with you, because if I can convince you, you're the ones with your jobs actually on the line. And I talk to them about the changes, and I talk to them about how the world's moving away from coal, and I talk to them about how there'll be no new coal-fired power stations in coal-fired power stations. You know? And you know what? Those conversations, sure, they can be a little bit you know, pointed at times, but they're good conversations. And I have not had one worker ever say to me, ever, we want a new coal-fired power station. Because these guys aren't stupid, right? They see the world moving. They know what's happening. And they worry about the future, sure. But they know that when this coal-fired power station closes, nobody's going to build a new one. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. So what's going to replace it? Well, that's what the conversation you can have with them about green hydrogen and electrolysers and how many jobs are involved and the benefits of hydrogen and the benefits of storage and what that means and the opportunities for export and creating jobs. And, you know, I sometimes use the example, you know, you might think of this town as a coal town. It's like Kodak thinking of themselves as a film company when actually yeah. they're an image company, right? If they'd seen the world changing and thought, well, we help people save their memories. It happens to be through film, but we're going to transition to a new technology. Kodak might still be around today. Yeah. Same with a community. You say, well, you're not actually a coal or a gas town. You're an energy town. Yeah. So, you know, you can make energy and you can store energy and there's lots of jobs in it. And uh, as I said, you know, those conversations go pretty well. They have, the workers have views about how it should happen. And, you know, they have views about retraining. And a lot of people in the city say, man, why don't we just retrain the workers? And I say, it's not that simple because while retraining is important, when I go to the workers, they say, yeah, retraining has got to have a job at the end. You know, no point retraining is having all these courses to make us bulldozer drivers if there's no bulldozer drivers at the end of it. You've got to have a plan and you've got to have an end point. And we do. You know, that's why our policies, which we put out in December, We had them modelled independently. It shows 604,000 jobs created from the policy settings, five out of six of them in the regions. So that's what I can talk about when I go to those regions and say, you know, if we get this policy right and the settings right and the certainty and we get the investment going, the jobs are going to be created here, not in the cities. Because apart from solar panels on our roofs, we can't make energy in the cities. We don't have the... It's not what we do. We don't have the space, we don't have the skills, we don't have the access to the grid. That all happens in the Hunter Valley, in Queensland, etc. So, you know, as I said... Those conversations in the regions go pretty well and they live and breathe the energy economy. They see it. They know more about it than you know most of us in the cities and they know when they're being sold nonsense as the National Party sells them and I think they're up for a very constructive conversation.
0: Well, speaking of the National Party, there are a lot of people who listen to this show on the tractors uh, mm. all up and down the... Eastern Did you see that seaboard, uh, British yeah.
2: MP um, the other day? He was caught in the House of Commons chamber looking at pornography, and he said, "I was searching for tractors, but I got uh, somehow it took me to a porn
1: porn site." <laughs> yeah. so, in the mm, pop up, the old
2: um,
0: pop up link. <laughs> so, especially in this country, the farmers are essentially a protected species to the point where they need to be brought to the table whenever we start talking about climate change, because mm. farmers are the biggest emitters of carbon in our economy. You know, through livestock and whatnot. How is Labor engaging the agriculture kind of sector on where they're moving forward with your climate policy? Yeah, again, I think there's been a shift change here. I think there's,
2: again, a bit of a myth in some media that somehow rural people or farmers aren't on board for climate change action. That's not my experience because farmers love the country they farm and they see it changing in front of their eyes. You know, of course, I mean, I don't want to generalise because, of course, there are some who have different views. But all the evidence shows farm profits are down, farm productivity is down, you know, as a total because of climate change, because the country is changing and not in a good way. So there's lots of groups out there like Farmers for Climate Action and there's others who I've engaged in with. And, again, they want to be part of it. And they see the opportunities again. You know, see the opportunities of carbon farming. They see yeah. the opportunities from better soil management. They see the opportunities of the... You know, famous asparagopsis seaweed, which um, stops methane from cows, you yeah. know. Um, sure, it's complicated. You know, sure, there's challenges. but Cat is they- a
1: big big supporter of that one, actually. The, is old, he? Yeah, the, yeah, the, old, the old algae.
2: The old, yeah, 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 Bob loves <laughs> yeah. his algae. But, you know, asparagopsis, again, it sounds, you know, very nerdy, but that's Australian scientists who've worked out that this particular type of seaweed, if you put a little bit in feed, can reduce a cow's methane yeah. emissions by up to 80% or more. Now, again, we're a broadacre farming country. I'm not pretending it's all simple or easy, but if you don't engage with the farming community, you're not going to make any progress. And the farming community does want to be engaged. And the National Party, I think, has got it wrong. Or they've got it right because maybe Matt Canavan has actually been honest about one thing because he did say in a podcast, not this one, but another one a couple of months ago, we don't represent farmers. No, we represent. No, we he re-
0: likes to <laughs> represent
1: people like his brother.
0: Mm. I guess,
1: Mm.
2: yeah. Yeah. He's got a different view of what the country party
1: used to be. Yeah. Yeah, And he's from the Gold Coast. And he's Italian. (laughs) Now, I want to talk to you about the Labor Party in the bush. So, as anyone would know with family in the bush, we've been voting Nat in the Maranoa since about the 40s, but... A lot of the regions, you know, there was a Labor MP between the Catters up there, Mm -hmm. you know, between Bob and his father. There was a Labor MP and a lot of the regions, particularly in the days of shearing, you know, before the wide comb dispute. There was always, Labor always had a presence in the bush. And in fact, that was the heartland in many kind of regional electorates. You're talking to us about the regions and everyone you're talking to being open-minded and willing to come to the table with well, some of most, ideas. most, not everyone, but, yeah. you know, a lot, yeah. So coming to the I- table with some of the ideas you're bringing out there, what's going on in Labor HQ where they're not saying, let's get out there, let's spend a year campaigning out there? How have you lost some of these regions? Like, what is yeah. stopping you from going out there and having another dig? I mean... In a crazy, crazy universe in this election where we end up with some sort of hung scenario and the teals or whatever. I mean, what's stopping a Labor national coalition? Well,
2: um, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Historically, there have been <laughs> Labor country party coalitions yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, at the state level, including recent, not that long ago in South Australia, there was a national party minister in Mike Rand's government. Mm. I don't think that's going to happen nationally. I think there's just too much of a gap between the National Party and the Labor Party, because the National Party sort of sometimes called themselves socialists, but they have a very different view of, you know. <laughs> Surely <laughs> there's a spot for Darren Chester, I mean. Darren Chester's a good bloke. Yeah, he doesn't really fit into the modern National Party, uh, no. I suspect. But in terms of the Labor Party, you're right. I love Labor Party history, and there's a lot of rural history to the Labor Party. I mean, some of our greatest leaders have been from the bush. I mean, Andrew Fisher, our second Prime Minister, was the member for Wide Bay in Queensland. And... If you look even in New South Wales at the history, you know, the McKell government, uh, William McKell became Labor Premier of New South Wales in the forties, and he started that very long period of Labor government, which went into the sixties. His whole strategy was a country strategy. He wanted Labor members in the bush, and when it, it worked, you know, and the, most of the seats in the in the bush in New South Wales were Labor. Now, it's hard work. We've got a lot of work to do. But we do it. You know, Albo and I were travelling through farms and rural New South Wales earlier this year when lockdown finished. We've got senators who are working their guts out. You know, Senator Deb O'Neill, for example, in New South Wales is always visiting country seats. I do it when I can because I think it's important. I do think in my particular portfolio, as we've discussed, it's huge opportunities. Does that mean we're going to, you know, all of a sudden win country seats? No, but I mean, I, I wouldn't write us off in the medium to longer term as becoming more competitive in the regions, and I would certainly want to.
0: Yeah, well, so you'd just kind of be coming back to your Ben Chifley roots. Yeah. yeah. To, I suppose you could call the areas you know of Orange and Bathurst part of the country, but I think that Sydney's creeping further and yeah. further and further. Well, it
2: certainly was when he was the member there in living yeah. there,
0: right?
1: Yeah. I want to talk to you about this dark horse that's coming through in the shape of independence. Not mm. really a concern for the Labor Party because they're targeting moderate Liberal seats could become a real concern in the next few weeks for Morrison. Mm. One thing that the Liberal Party does is they're basically in chaos, you know, outside of an election. Particularly the New South Wales Liberals had a big problem with Morrison, we all saw that and these pre selection dramas and all that yada yada yada. But they tighten up for an election mm. and they run and they run pretty well. What do you think is wrong with the current government that is making them lose their blue ribbon seats? I mean we can talk about climate change. Sure easily that, that's a big element of this it's a, it's a big concern in the inner cities it's a big concern on the overinsured houses of Northern Beaches, Sydney with the eroding sand and the well, swimming pools going into the Pacific Ocean they'll but, almost be uninsurable soon I'll tell yeah. you what but what else is it? do you think it's a personality thing? do you think there is just an ick? you know I, I, uh, I put that down to quite often the female voters are aware of an ick yeah, uh, yeah. And they have a sixth sense about a person or a machine
2: I think there's a bit of that but you know, particularly with some of the Terrible things that have happened in Parliament and Parliament House over the last few years. But I think there's also a broader problem for the government and for the Liberal Party. And it is about climate change, but l- let me put it in broader terms. For years, the Liberal Party has gotten away with being basically all things to all people. You yeah. know, So they ran around at the last election in 2019 saying you know, in the regions, climate action is going to cost you your job, climate action is going to cost you your job. And frankly, city voters didn't hold them to account for that. You know, they could get away with it. So they could win Kooyong and they could win Capricornia with very different messages. I think city voters have caught up with them. Mm-hmm. So we're not putting up with this anymore. You know, you are not going to delay climate action and you are not going to run around getting seats in the bush and think we're okay with it by your lies. Mm-hmm. you know? Take those seats that are under challenge, you know, whether it be Kooyong, Wentworth or North Sydney or Goldstein or McKellar or Curtin. They're not sort of radical communities, right? They're, they're mm. quite frankly, well-off and historically economically conservative, but they also want to see action on some of the biggest issues facing our country, including climate change, and they're just sick of it. They're just Mm -hmm. sick of the inaction, and they're sick of this nonsense argument that they run in seats in uh, regional Australia to try and get people's votes, and they know it's not true, and they're, they're now holding them to account. I don't know exactly how those seats will fall, but I know the Liberals are now being held to account. Because the Liberals just sort of took these communities for granted and said, oh, they'll keep voting for us. You know, Mm -hmm. Coo and Wentworth, we can get away with delaying climate action. We can get away with lying about the economic impacts in the bush because these voters won't hold us to account because these seats have always been Liberal. Well, that's not the case Mm -hmm. anymore. So obviously I want people in those seats to vote Labor. Yeah. But, you know stretch for most of them just you know too far but you know they're they're looking having a serious look at the independence in many of those seats some of them are you know we've got good labor candidates in in many of the seats as well but you know i do recognize it's a genuine contest and you know we'll see what happens it is it is very interesting but i do think that's what it comes down to it's just you know those voters
0: saying we're as mad as hell we're not going to take it anymore i just want to quickly talk about this help to buy scheme that's mm. helping that will help a lot of australians into their first home a few criticisms around that it's kind of limited to 10,000 at the moment which you know in the scheme of things is really a fart in the wind really <laughs> is there any plan to expand this any further i mean like i know that the incoming government now they have you know a first homes scheme that really is more about optics and whatnot. I, hmm. I think a lot of voters were really hoping that Labour's answer to that would have had a bit more substance. But at the same time, a lot of voters know that the country's broke at the moment and we can't go yeah, around spending all, much, yeah. all this money on stupid things like other people's houses. I think, Gerald, that 10,000 is a decent number. Like, Yeah, you're right. It's a small proportion of the
2: broad population. But we're talking about it as a proportion of... You know, frankly, mainly young people trying to get into the market. So, yeah. it's a bigger proportion of first home buyers, right? So it does make a difference. Of course, you know, we'll see how it goes, and you know, if it's working very well, as I expect it will be, then obviously, you know, we'd like to do more if and when we can. But you know, one step at a time. It's a huge issue, and you know, we do. We're the only party, you know, of government, i.e., a party that might, might form government, going to the election with a housing affordability plan. Yeah. I mean, what's the government's plan? Absolutely nothing. I don't mean to just you know deflect straight to them, but. You know our plan is good, and I see the Liberal Party is now sort of reduced to, oh well, you know, there's going to be an independent assessment of the renovations, and you know, oh, they might, they, they might not be able to leave it to the kids. I mean, they're down really, sort of. I know when you're sort of attacking that level of detail, it means you really think it's probably a good idea, but you've got to find something to complain about it. So, look, I think it's a good policy. It's been working at the state level. You know, again, you can say only ten thousand sure, but it sits also alongside the existing state schemes which have impact on people help people yeah. like western australia and south australia have got schemes which are very very similar to this so you put them together and if you're a young person trying to get the market you'll have a choice oh, I could go to the western australian Keystarter, I could go to the federal scheme you know etc you got options so it's giving people more options yeah and uh, does it solve all the problems overnight sure i actually think it's a i mean it's the first time the commonwealth sort of mm-hmm. gone down this road
0: or an opposition has flagged this at the federal level first time you know that this has been done so i think it's a pretty good start yeah. well a lot of these kind of schemes and policies are aimed at you know stimulating industries that are predominantly you know staffed by men what's labor going to do for women a big issue for women is running the time and the leave entitlements to mm. start a family and then there's re-entering the workforce mm. after to that and really the only way that a lot of women can re-enter the workforce is through childcare.
2: Mm. well I guess I guess I point to three things Gerald. one on the weekend we announced that we this might sound like pretty basic but it's actually pretty important. On the weekend we announced that we'd have gender pay equity as an objective of the Fair Work Act, like it actually should be something we're trying to do. We technically made differential wages illegal in Australia in uh, I think 1969. We we still have a massive gender pay gap for all sorts of reasons and our government should at least be trying to fix that and we want to we make a contribution to that by getting the Fair Work Act moving in that direction. Uh, Secondly, again, this won't apply to everyone, and it's not exclusively, to be clear, a female issue, but we should have domestic violence leave in Australia. You know, you should be able to take time to deal with the most difficult circumstances you're probably going to face in your life and not be worried about losing a job. So we would deal with that. And then finally, as you said, childcare. We have a, a pretty big childcare offering, which just makes it easier for so many families, including young families with primarily mums getting back into the workforce. And again, the government just sort of says, oh, it's nothing to see here. Well, we've got a pretty big... That's actually a pretty big difference, pretty yeah. big offering there. So I guess I'd point to those three
0: things as pretty substantial policy offerings for exactly the sort of issues that you're talking about. Yeah, I just want to quickly unpack that uh, childcare offering in that a lot of women who find themselves going back to work, they're honestly only going back just to pay mm. childcare. So mm. I think one of the biggest issues is, is the affordability yep. of... Childcare. How does this scheme tackle that?
2: Basically, it provides more support yeah. to
0: exactly, exactly. You're right.
2: You know, families going, "Oh, should I go back to work?" Well, actually, I'll only just be making enough to pay for childcare. So, maybe I should go back to work for other reasons, but it's not for financial reasons. You know, and that's a pretty tough decision for families to make. So, it basically provides a lot more support to families, you know, right up and down wherever they are in the system, and and provides less of a if you like an effective, you call that the effective tax rate, right? You're, yeah. You're effectively taxing some women, primarily women, going back you to the workforce at like 110%. Yeah, exactly, it, yeah. So our policy actually sort of explicitly tackles that, explicitly yeah. deals with it and says, well, actually, this is wrong. There's all sorts of reasons why we want women back in the workforce, partly for them, partly for the economy. You know, it's good. The economy needs them back. So let's get rid of this ridiculous effective tax rate. And that's basically what the policy does.
1: I want to thank you for answering our questions, honestly. I also want to thank you for leaving yourself so exposed. You're lucky in the sense that it's on the Batuta Advocate podcast Mm. because any um, newspaper that would want to take you out of context would get laughed out of the room for referencing the Batuta Advocate (laughs) as a source. I don't know. I find
2: one of Australia's more credible newspapers.
0: Well,
1: thank you for that. But, you know, there'll be no favours to you uh, (laughs) heading into this
0: election. No. We have been courted by both sides in the past, and I'll tell Mm you what, we know... Who butters our bread?
1: Bob Catter. Bob Catter. Now, Fair uh, enough, who could argue with Bob I, I do want to ask you the fun questions now. Where do you think you're going to get up? What's your path to victory? Um, well, we spoke to Albo about mm-hmm. six months ago, and he said he had high hopes for the very tip, like Leichhardt. I'm not sure if that's still a similar yeah. feeling, but where are you guys looking at forging this path to victory?
2: Well, look, Clancy, I actually genuinely think this is going to be really, really close. Mm-hmm. Uh, we meant to say it's really close. I actually really think it's going to be close. Mm-hmm. I think despite the fact that Morrison is you know, as popular as the proverbial and the proverbial, you know, it's, it's it's going to be tight and it's not easy for us to form government ever from opposition. So I think it's going to be tight. Yes, uh, the set of Leichhardt is one we're very interested in. In Sydney, I'd be looking closely at the set of Reed, Sally Situ, our excellent candidate there. I, I've got high hopes for her. I'd be looking at the seat of Robertson, Dr. Gordon Reid's our candidate
0: yep. there. We've got hopes there.
2: Jerome Lexile in Bennelong.
0: Bennelong's seat with only won once, famously. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know. Well, in the same kind of fashion that we saw 11 years ago, really, which is yeah. when, uh, yeah. when Howard lost it after the rates yeah, right. were increased in the middle of an election campaign. So there,
2: there, that's just a few – that's not an exclusive list, but there yeah. are a few seats I'd be looking at down in Sydney, a long way from the Diamantina, but that's where I'd be looking um, in Sydney. There's a few – you know, obviously those Tasmanian seats are always – tight yeah i mean we talk about
0: andrew wilkie's on a knife isn't he
2: uh yeah i mean well um he we'd is, like is we'd like the, a labor member there he's yeah. the only <laughs> teal candidate running against labor isn't <laughs> it? yeah that is traditional yeah. labor seat which he's which he's held for now quite a few years yeah but look those bass and Braddon the seats that we were really are really trying to win yeah they're always hard to call and always very very close bass in particular you know mm. we talk about Insecure work. The member for Bass traditionally has a pretty insecure job and we uh, will be trying pretty hard to get Ross Hart uh, elected there in Bass. Mm.
1: Now, I also appreciate you not being too confident, not being too cocky. Looking back at that last election, there was a lot of different things we point to. I guess I would point to the regions being misunderstood. Things were good before the bushfires and the pandemic and uh, there were a lot of things that people didn't want to change in their lives. Is there an element of playing it safe? I mean negative gearing was a relatively radical policy in the scheme of things when you talk to anyone who had the free education and got into the housing market in the 1980s with a house that cost $25,000 and Is a genius for having that foresight. What would you say about the current approach? Are you playing it safe, or are you actually? Do you think you're taking some risks with your policy?
2: Yeah, I I think. Look, the last election is a bit like a a game of Jenga. You know, Mm -hmm. when you you never know quite which thing you pulled out. Mm -hmm. It's called the tower to fall. Like, and we'll all have views, and you never really know. Like, Mm -hmm. there'll be any number of factors. Well, lots of things. In hindsight. In hindsight, you look back and think, yeah, we probably could have done that better, right? And it's not just any one particular thing. Mm-hmm. But to your question, I would put it this way, that we're more focused this time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's actually less ambitious, but at the last election, we had lots of things going on, and we did open ourselves up to the whole scare campaign thing, because any one particular policy, you could defend, right? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's, it's, but then when you actually had it as part of the whole sort of picture, we were defending too many flanks, and it, and it became just ultimately too hard. and And then we were dealing with the whole culture wars in the regions, et cetera, as you said, which, um, again, in hindsight, there's things we could have and should have done differently, and all of us. But I think we've really sort of taken the approach now of, okay, let's really focus in, I would argue, a climate change policy, which is ambitious, you know, 43%. We've got 92 months to achieve it. That's not long. That's actually a big task. And, you know, we knew doing that, we'd be opening ourselves up to this silly scare campaign. That's fine. You know, we'll just deal with it. But we are trying to sort of pick the fights pretty carefully. So we've got a pretty focused agenda. So we can concentrate on those things where we can really make the case for a mandate.
1: Thank you for joining us, Chris Bowen. All the best. And uh, what's your team out there? Bulldogs? Uh,
2: Parramatta and uh, the mighty Western Sydney Giants. I know you're not particularly AFL people, but, you know, Western Sydney Giants.
0: I would say as, as a parliamentary member from Western Sydney, it would be safe to have an AFL team. Yes. And thank God that the AFL has made it easy for you. Yeah, well, that's right,
2: because we've got one team for Western Sydney.
1: And, of course, there's Western Sydney Wanderers in the roundbook code. Well, I hope that your (laughs) political party does better than all three of those teams in the next few weeks. (laughs) But it's a low bar. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Good to see you guys.